This morning, uh, for, the, for, for this month, the month of March, we're talking about our mission as a church. Uh, last week, uh, Pastor Victor talked about the, the Great Commission. Uh, coming up in a, in a couple of weeks, we'll be talking about being a volunteer versus being a missionary. This morning, uh, what I'm going to focus on in this is, is the body of Christ, our mission, community or fellowship? Community or fellowship? Now, they sound, you know, and you can use those as synonyms. But the way we're going to talk about it this morning is a little bit different than them being synonymous. We're going to use them in a way that there's a nuanced difference between them. Uh, and one being how we see the body from our culture. Another being how does the Bible understand and see the body of Christ. Um, one, of the, uh, uh, one of the scholars I've been talking about quite a bit recently is a scholar named Tom Holland. He's a historian. And... Um, there was an article that was, that was written, The West Has Much to Learn from the Persecuted Christians, says historian Tom Holland. Now, Tom Holland's a historian, he's a scholar, but he's not a believer. So, one of the things that he has said that has just been going through my mind over and over and over again is this. The path to re-Christianize the West will require Christians to become de-Westernized. The path to re-Christianize the West... Will, be, will require Christians to be de-Westernized. And I'm telling you, I've been thinking about this. What does that mean? What is it in me that I look at the church, that I approach my faith, that I approach Christianity from a perspective that's other than the Bible? What is it that I need to renew in my mind that is a biblical way of thinking that is not how I think? And, and his, his, his argument is this. His argument is, is we have these concepts and ideas that we live by. The concept of human rights. The concept that there even are rights given to us, innate, inalienable, by God. The concept of the dignity of an individual. The concept of lifting up those who are oppressed. Lifting up those who are weak. And he says all of them, all of them come from a supernatural view of the world, specifically centered on the cross of Christ. And yet we have, you know, we have the whole human rights uh, commission in the, in the UN that, that, uh, that, that sees human rights with no foundation found in Christ. And, and what he says is this. He says, if we continue to divorce ourselves from the foundation, we will lose the rights themselves. So this isn't just a, a nice to think about. Wouldn't it be nice if we thought more biblically? Wouldn't it be nice if we understood these things a little bit better? This is literally cr crucial for our culture itself. It is crucial for us to understand who we even are when we come and gather together. So that's the burden that's been processing, and I've been thinking about this quite a bit. Spending a lot of time on this. And so this morning, one of the things I realized is this. We talk about this all the time in the church. How many know that we are in a spiritual battle? We agree with that, okay? For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities of the air, Ephesians, right? We, 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 we talk about this all the time. Um, if I was the enemy of God and I wanted to tear down the, the God, I want to be his enemy and I want to tear down God, I want to remove him, where do I start? Well, I start in a few places. One, I start with marriage, I start with family, and two, I start with the church. 
If I can destroy the church, I have destroyed the image of God on earth. If I can destroy family, I have destroyed the image of God on earth. These are the plans and concepts of the enemies. Now, uh, Paul talks about in Corinthians as well, where does this battle go on? Okay? I'll tell you, the battle, uh, it, it doesn't go on for us standing here shouting at a devil. It tells us that these strongholds are built in our minds for every stronghold that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. We are to take every thought captive. We are to bring these arguments uh, uh, um, uh, captive to the obedience of Christ. And so when we're talking this morning about this subject, about, about de-westernizing Christians, about us understanding this faith that we have, we're actually talking about spiritual warfare. We're talking about how it is we confront the battles that we face that we don't see. And that's important. And so I've been asking myself, what is it that I don't see that I'm holding on to, that I'm believing when I walk in this door that is actually not representing Christ, that is not understood in Christ? Is everybody with me? I got one person. Everybody with me? All right, good. So that said, I, um, I was doing a little research as one does, and uh, I found a, 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 a research study that was done at the Pew Center, done by the Pew Center in 2018. This was in a CNN website. They surveyed 4,729 Americans, and they asked, why do or why don't you attend religious services? And so here's, here's the responses. Now, you could res- when you add them all up, you're going to go, that's more than 100. You could respond more than once. Okay, so people could have more than one response. But this is what, this is what they discovered. Number one, uh, 81% to become closer to God. 69%, so their children will have a moral foundation. 68% to become a better person. Uh, 66% for comfort in times of trouble or sorrow. 59% that they find the sermons valuable. I really liked that one. I thought that was a good one. <laughs> anyway, uh, 57% to be part of a faith community. to continue their family's religious traditions. 31% they feel obligated to go. 19% to meet new people or socialize. And 16% to please their family member, spouse, and partner. I remember that one very well when I was a kid. Family member, right? Um, Now, equally telling is not only why, but why people don't. Now, I want you to pay attention to the don'ts for a minute. Pay attention to the don'ts for a minute. Listen to this. They practice their faith in other ways, 37%. They are not believers, 28%. No reason is very important, in other words, very important to attend, 26%. They haven't found a house of worship they like, 23%. They don't like the sermons, 18%. I was glad that number was so small. Anyway, they don't feel welcome, 14%. They don't have time, 12%. Poor health or mobility, 9%. No house of worship in their area, 7%. Now, what fascinated me about the don'ts is this. Only 28% said because they don't believe. Did you catch that? Only 28% said because they don't believe. Did you catch that? Now, there's another portion, that, you know, inability. There's no place in, in their, where they live or there's poor health and mobility. I mean, these are, these are some structural issues. But the primary reasons um, were, were other than... They didn't believe. All right. So, um, I, and as I read through these and I, and I pondered and I thought about them, the whys and why nots, 
a lot of these are very understandable. I get it. I can see it. They make sense. They make sense in our culture. It makes sense from our perspective. But as, as the more I thought on them, the more I looked at them, here's, here's the thing. There is a fundamental disconnect, a fundamental disconnect between a biblical understanding of being a member of the body of Christ and a cultural understanding of being a church member or attender. Can I tell you, as good as these reasons may or may not be, as good as these reasons you may personally relate to, they're not biblical. Now, what do you mean by that? So, to illustrate, uh, I'm going to turn to a portion of Scripture. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, I love this fact that Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians. Corinth, you can show the map. Corinth was this uh, little city. You see where that big blue arrow is there? It's this little city in this land mass, a land bridge, um, that was this hugely international city. And what is so awesome about this letter, letter is that the people in this church were just like us, toe up. I mean, they had every problem you can imagine. And so by Paul writing letters to them, we can look back and go, wow, these were real people with problems and issues just like us. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. The church isn't full of perfect people. The church is meant to be people who are becoming perfected. And so he's written these letters, and we, we, uh, we have the benefit of learning from them. All right, so he's, in 1 Corinthians 11, I'm going to read this passage. starts in verse 17. He goes through verse 32. It says this, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you gather together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and you humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I will also deliver to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread... And drink this cup. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Paul, now it goes back to Paul. Paul says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. So each, so, and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when, when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Wow. Paul doesn't really mince words too much. Now let's break this down and look at what's going on in this passage. There, uh, the, the, the dictionary of Paul in his letters, it's, it says this. It's a quote from that dictionary. It says, since there were no church buildings, meals were held in houses of church members. 
And these, these occasions were full of plenty of food, at least for some. There's a picture of a house church up there. You have that picture? So you can see in the center is where they would gather. This is, a, this is an actual replica of a house church that, that might have been there in, the, in, in Corinth or all over, all over uh, Asia Minor in Greece. It says this, that although the, reach, the rich opened their houses to the church, they did so in a way that emphasized social divisions. The rich carried over the practices of the secular world into the church and sinned against their poor brothers and sisters. Wow. Now, it's easy for us. How many of us right now can sit, there, sit here and just think about the Corinthians and go, how could they do that to those poor people? Mm-mm-mm. All right, well, let's go through this text just a little bit, and let's see what's happening. Paul says this, your gatherings, your church gatherings, your church services, they're not good. Why? Because you have this Greco-Roman practice from your culture you are bringing into the service. You see, this practice of the rich coming in, they would bring baskets of food, and they'd have these whole meals, and they would eat, and the poor would be in the other room. And, and, uh, uh, and maybe, maybe even coming late, and they would get the leftovers. They did not see anything wrong with that. This is what's crucial for us if we want to understand this passage. You see, the reason why we think there's something wrong with that is this text right here has so influenced our culture. Because we have a Christianized worldview, we see that that's wrong. They didn't see that as wrong. That's how they lived. They live this way in culture. Well, of course, they, you know, of course we're going to eat first. This is us. This is the way culture is. This is society. There's orders in society. This is what we have. This is what they have. Hey, look, we're opening our houses. We wouldn't have done that before. And this is what Paul says. He says, when you're doing this, he says, you know what? The fact that there are factions, there have to be. Why? Because what it demonstrates is who among you gets it. Who gets it? Who understands what Christ actually did for you? You see, when that division happens and you step out opposed to culture and cross that bridge, you're demonstrating a change of Christ in your life. You're demonstrating something different. And he says, he says this is what's happening. You're coming together and you're eating these meals and you're calling it communion and it is not communion. Why? Because the, the wealthy are being calloused. They're flaunting their plenty and their prejudice and they're humiliating those with less. And when they're doing that, they're actually despising Christ's body. Now, he does something really weird, because in the middle of all that, he starts talking about the principles of communion. If you read it carefully, and you don't know the connection he's making, it seems strange. Because he goes from, should I commend you and everything, and then he gives this creed. Now, I'm going to say this is a commercial. We don't have time to really get into the creed this morning, but we will in Connect Group. So come join us in Connect Group right after service. There's a lot more details in here than we're going to have time to get into this morning to talk about this and break it down. Uh, so join us afterwards. But I'm going to say this right here. He puts this, this, these, this is the earliest communion uh, uh, um, uh, creed that we have in the entire Bible. This was written before the Gospels. And it's a creed that's as early as uh, uh, three years after Christ or sooner. This is a very, very early creed. And this is what he's saying. This is the, this is the point he's trying to make. And it's, it's, it's nuanced. He says, listen, when you're eating these elements, what are you eating? You're eating these elements that, that, that memorialize and represent uh, 
the sacrifice that Jesus made. And you're recognizing that you have fellowship with Jesus when you're eating that. When we take communion and we're thinking about this is his body he broke for you. This is his blood he gave for you. you. This is the way you have fellowship with Jesus. If it wasn't for this sacrifice, you would not have that fellowship. And he's saying, you're, you're doing that. And, and by doing that, you're declaring you have his name. You're saying, I have taken his name. Like marriage, I have taken on the name of my groom. I have taken on his name. Now, when the moment you've taken on his name and then you turn to your brother and you don't sacrifice for your brother, you demonstrate you don't really have his name. You don't really have his name. You see, he's marrying two things. You cannot be in Christ and out of fellowship with the body at the same time. To have fellowship with Christ is to have fellowship with the body. You are connected to both the body and Christ at the same time. They're inseparable. And so this worldview you're bringing in, you need to throw it out. You need to jettison it. It is not the worldview that, uh, of Christ. You're not understanding this. And further, he goes, he goes, if you eat that bread and you drink that cup and you're not understanding this, this concept of who the body is, you're actually eating and drinking judgment on yourself. What? So, if you're participating in communion and you're not, again, sacrificing for your brother and for your sister, he's saying that is the height of hypocrisy. So to participate in this worship, you're memorializing what Christ has done across all time on the one side, and then to flaunt what you have in front of your brother, you're denying what Christ did on the other. Now, Paul said this earlier in the letter to the Corinthians. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? How many know that? We're the temple of God. God's spirit dwells in us. We've heard that over and over. It's one of the first things you hear, right? And then he says this. We leave this next verse out. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. It's like, Ouch. Now look, I want to say this, and I mean this. I really mean this. This is not for us to sit here and, 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 and under a guilt and condemnation and all that. This is for us to have our eyes open to see what is the fullness of what it means to be in the body. If you find that there are prejudices awaking in you, if you find that, that, that the Holy Spirit is beginning to prick your heart about things you might to change or might need to do different, it's not, it's not about being guilted into it. It's about being awakened to what's keeping you from the fullness that he has for you. And yes, there are consequences when you don't. Does that make sense? All right, let me keep going. So what's Paul's concern here? He's saying if you're truly going to be Christian, if you're truly going to Christianize the Greco-Roman world, if you truly want to have an impact for Christ in the Greco-Roman world, you need to take what is Greco-Roman opposed to Christ out of you. I don't mean you get out of culture. I mean you redeem culture. All right, now, Here's our question for us then. What is, the, is, the, is there something for us in here? I mean, because, you know, we, we don't, most of us aren't going to have a problem with, with seeing other people at different levels in Christ. That's not going to be our issue. What is going to be our issue? Well, here's my question. Do we, do we have a right understanding of what it means to be a part of the body of Christ? Or is there something cultural that's ingrained in us 
that, that is blinding us to what it means to have proper biblical participation in the body of Christ. That's community versus fellowship. Now, Peter Toon wrote a fantastic article. This is in the Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology. Um, and I'm just going to hit the points that he talks about. He says, listen, he says, the Western view that we have, the way that we look at the world, and it's a very modern way when we talk about community. When we say community, and that word, it carries with it a meaning that is completely foreign to the Bible. It means this. Community presupposes individualism in the West. It presupposes. The individual in the West is the basic unit of society, right? The rugged individualism, the pioneer who conquered. If I'm going to help my, God helps them who helps themselves. I've got to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. If I don't take care of me, nobody will. This, this mindset of individualism is the mindset we have, and we have it so much we don't even know it. In the same way that the Corinthians had this socioeconomical thing in their mind, it was so much so it was just natural to come into church and humiliate other people without even realizing it. It was part of their thinking. And he says this. He says, for, so therefore, for us, what does community mean to us? It means community is when we have a group or a body that's formed when individuals come together with some sort of mutual agreement. Well, what that means then, if something breaks down in that mutual agreement, I'm no longer a part of it. I can go do my own thing. I can go do something else. This is what, it's because I'm going to join because I'm mutually agree or I'm going to pull out because I'm mutually I don't agree anymore. It's all about me. You see, but uh, it's individuals that take the initiative to choose voluntarily to pr- participate. I'm going to volunteer to participate here. Oh, you need a volunteer? Let me think about it. Maybe that's convenient. Okay, I'll participate. Oh, it's not convenient. That won't work. And that's the mindset. And look, the, uh, the, again, this isn't faulting. This is the way we, our culture thinks. And it's not biblical. It is completely foreign to the Bible. Now, what is biblical thinking? Biblical thinking is this. Short and sweet, it's fellowship. And the word for it is koinonia. Koinonia. And where does it come from? How many have heard us say over and over again, we are created in the image of God? Genesis 1, we are created in the image of God. Well, when we think about God, the Godhead, there is one God, there are three persons. God is one and three at the same time, God is a being in community. He's a being in community. Matthew twenty eight nineteen. Therefore, go, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in what? The name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. One God, three beings, complete unity, communion at the same time, three, uh, three and one at the same time. So in biblical thinking, in fellowship, when we come in... Uh, um, in God, let me start with this. In God, there's this internal and eternal relatedness. There's true fellowship. I'm going to put it a different way. The greatest love relationship in the world, the greatest love relationship in the world is the Father and the Son. And it is expressed through the Spirit. When we say God is love, we mean God is love internally, right? It's it's who he is. It's his character in nature. Well, if that is true, then apart from time, space, and matter and all, he must be a community because love logically needs a subject-object relationship. Well, when we come to, to, in faith to Christ, when we come in relationship with Christ, when the believer enters into fellowship with God, we are entering into fellowship with a being in community. We now have come into community with him, 
And we are now in community with every other believer at the same time. At the same time. Fellowship with God. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. Do you hear what he just said? He says, we, how many know that we're here by the grace of God? Thank you for your grace of the, of the Lord Jesus. And by that grace, I what? Know and experience the love of God. And as a result, I am in fellowship with the Holy Spirit. This whole concept, I have, there's a oneness now. And it, it, is, it is brought out in this prayer of Jesus. John chapter 17 is this intimate, intimate, beautiful prayer where Jesus is praying to the Father. We're not going to go through the whole thing. Go back and read that prayer. So many times in the Gospels, we hear about Jesus um, going off and praying, but we don't know what he prays. John 17 opens the window up of this heart between the Father and the Son, this love relationship. And there's this one little part in this prayer that he says this. I don't ask for these. In other words, he's not just praying for his disciples who were alive right there with him. But I also pray for those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus is literally praying for you and I right here and what is his prayer what is his heart what is beating inside of him he says that they may all be one just as you father are in me and i in you so that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me what he's saying here fellowship if i am in christ if i have a relationship with the father then that automatically means i have koinonia fellowship with the body of christ it's not a choice i make it's not something i volunteer to do it is automatic and a fact and if i'm going to say i am saved i'm going to say i'm his that means i'm also got to say i love my brother and sister ouch that's not according to our culture he goes on, the glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that we may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. You see the point he just made twice in a row, twice in a row. If the world is going to see Jesus, it needs to see, it, see him through us being one with one another and one with him. Not something we volunteer to do, not something that's nice to do, not something that's, hey, if, it's, if it fits me, if it meets my needs. It's, I want to represent Jesus in the world. I need to be one with those in the body of Christ. Fellowship. That's a whole radical different way of looking at it. John said this in his letter, his first letter. He says, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you, so that you may, to, may to also have fellowship with us. He's telling you, I'm te we're telling you the gospel right now. We're preaching the gospel that you can have fellowship. Your salvation is tied to fellowship. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things that, that our joy may be complete. Do you notice he just tied salvation with the Father and the Son with fellowship with each other? He just put the two together in one sentence. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness. If we say we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the light. And then down in verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. Notice, if we say we have fellowship with God, we abide in the light. How do we abide in the light? Loving our brother. There's no ability to separate it. 
John is saying the very same thing here that Paul said. He's making the same connection. Verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. John just tied fellowship with communion. Did everybody see that? Paul said this later on to the Corinthians. After he makes this point in Corinthians, he goes on and he says, chapter 12, how this works out is by seeking the spiritual gifts and living them in the body. Why? For just verse, uh, verse 12, chapter 12, verse 12, for just as the body is one and has many members, all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we are all made to drink one spirit. Did you hear what Paul just said? Catch that. We're one body. We're many members. We're one body. How are we? We're one body because we're one with Christ. And there's one spirit. And the baptism, notice, the baptism which is, we already said, in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, is baptism into the body. Your salvation is tied to fellowship. All right. I'm going to close here. That's where I'm going to stop. Um, you know, as I was going through this, and I was thinking through this, this is such a radical way to thinking that, um, that we normally have. Such a different way to thinking than we normally have. It's something that it, it takes time to process. So I just want everybody right now just to, to pause. Close your eyes and think for a minute. And I've got a couple of questions to ask us. Is, is, is this a shock to your system? Is it a shock to your system to say... I don't really have a choice in participating in the body of Christ. It's as much a part of my salvation as being a participant in Christ. Is that as, I mean, because that is so anti-cultural. Stop and, and ask yourself. Let that work in process. There are so many scriptures that talk about this over and over and over. If I'm going to be a participant with Christ, then I have to be a participant in the body of Christ. I can't separate those two. And when I do, when I have made that leap, when I have made that understanding, when I have begun to embrace that walk, what happens? That the world may believe that you sent me. That the world may know that you sent me and loved me even as I loved you. Lorena? So let's just pray. Do you want to have impact in the world? Is, 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 the, is the thought, here's one of the thoughts that went through my mind. Is the thought causing you to internally rebel what I'm saying? Is there something in you that in your flesh you're saying, no, no, no I don't agree with this.
That's what was going on with the Corinthians. That's exactly what was happening with the Corinthians when Paul's talking to them. It was such a foreign thing to the way that they thought. 